Hey, everybody, and welcome to another My JavaScript Story. This week, we're talking to Dan Shapir. Dan, do you want to say hi? Yes, hi, and uh, you actually pronounced my, my last name very well, so thank you very much for that. Hey, no problem. Now, uh, we had you on JavaScript Jabber a while ago. I think we were talking about Wix and performance, if I remember right. Yeah, so we were talking about, well, not so much Wix uh, specifically. We were primarily talking about the web performance APIs. Okay. And from that, it kind of uh, snowballed into talking about uh, web performance in general. Right. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Yeah, it was actually yeah. a really good talk. I really enjoyed it. It was a lot of fun. It was episode 334. It was released October 2018. And uh, yeah, we, we had a good uh, talk. We had um, Amy Knight and Chris Ferdinandi on there as well. And uh, yeah, that was a ton of fun. Now, yeah. um, if I remember right, yeah, like I said, you work for Wix and you live out in Israel. Correct. I live in Tel Aviv in Israel, and I did and do still work at Wix. Nice. Anything else that people should know about you? Um, things you like, things you like outside of code even? Uh, well, I'm uh, married with three kids who are getting alarmingly big. Uh, <laughs> How uh, big? Yeah. Our, our baby is uh, 17 years old, so that, uh, that's really scary. Yeah. Uh, she's, she's also getting into coding now. So I have a competition at home in that regard. Uh, and we have a dog. We live in, in Tel Aviv in Israel. We do, we like to do a lot of traveling. So uh -huh. we, I uh, tend to go to various places all over the world when we can. Uh, I don't know if it's exactly outside of work, but I do also enjoy and really enjoy attending conferences and speaking in conferences when I can. So I, and overall, I really enjoy what I'm doing and life's good. Nice. Um, I, I'm also curious, what's your favorite part of what you do? Oh, wow. That's, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, I've been, we'll talk about it in a bit, I guess, but I've really been into software from a fairly young age. Uh, and uh, I've been trying to think in, in ahead of this uh, show what it is about software that I enjoy so much for such a long period of time. And I think it's really, it's two main things, I think, maybe more. It's, it's that it's like riddle solving all the time. Uh, mm -hmm. You're faced with, with new challenges all the time that you need to think through and, and find solutions for. So that's one thing I really enjoy. Another thing is that you have to, be, to kind of like keep on your toes and keep on learning new stuff. Uh, people were talking about uh, JavaScript fatigue like a year or two ago, and I was thinking like, hey, guys, you got it all backwards. It's, it's awesome <laughs> that we have to keep on learning new stuff all the time. Yeah. And, to, and, and one more thing is that I've never been much of a handyman. And with software, I get to create things, you know, right out from out of from my mind, from my brain, as it were. So things right. kind of flow through my fingertips, from my imagination, and and get this sort of a virtualized reality, but actually impact the real world. I find that to be extremely cool. Nice, yeah, uh, that that hits a lot of things for me too. I, I really enjoy a lot of those aspects and. Yeah, I mean, there's always new stuff to learn, and it's, it's exciting, super exciting. Uh -huh, uh -huh. 
Now, exactly. you alluded to this before, but uh, let, let's go back and talk about how you got into software in the first place. Oh, wow. So if, if your viewers could see me, they'd see that uh, by the color of my hair that I'm definitely not new to this business. Um, I actually got into software way, way back in the 80s of the previous millennium. Uh, uh, yeah, I was one of those kids that uh, got a personal computer and started uh, hacking away on it. Although I don't, I'm not sure that the term hacking would have applied back then because it wasn't really connected to anything. <laughs> uh, but, you know, almost from the get-go, when I got that computer, and I really just kind of fell in love with this whole concept of writing software. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, I was never really so much into games, video games, but almost from the get-go, I enjoyed creating games. So whenever I saw a game, I would try to think of whether I could try to mimic that game on, on my computer. So it was, uh, you know, I would, I would uh, use uh, an Apple II, you know, that kind of dates me, uh, uh, mm -hmm. Commodore 64. Um, uh, my, my, my own computer was this really weird machine called the TI-994A. Don't know if you've ever heard of it. Uh, my grandpa had one when I was a kid. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and he so, was, it, it was kind of, it was this all-in-one machine and the keyboard slid out of it. it that's, that, that's it, isn't it? Uh, the keyboard was part of the computer. You know, computers yeah. did not really have separate keyboards at that time. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's funny, I was talking to people, when I talk to people, you know, who are developers now, and I have them guess about how much RAM memory my, my, my first computer actually had, uh, some of them simply won't agree to go as low as it actually had. It seems like it it's, doesn't seem actually possible right. for them. Um, so, you know, these days where like your average website is something like a three megabyte download or something like that. Right. Uh, my original home computer had 4K of RAM. Right. And, and I could actually, as a kid, write usable programs for that. So that's, that was, uh, you learn to make do, I guess. Yeah. Um, my first programming language was obviously basic. And I have to say that it then took me years to unlearn some of the bad habits that I got as a result of using <laughs> that because it was uh, go-tos all over the place yep. and not really modular programming at all. Oh, um, yeah, and from there I progressed to an, uh, uh, you know, uh, a PC and mm -hmm. I started doing uh, also, in addition to BASIC, I also started doing x86 assembly language and then Turbo Pascal came along, which literally rocked my world. And all of a sudden I could actually do real programming in something that really looked like an actual programming language with structures and whatnot. Mm -hmm. uh, by the way, I can't emphasize enough how way ahead of its time Turbo Pascal was when it came out. It, it's, and by the way, this is the same guy that uh, later uh, created C Sharp and now TypeScript. It's the same guy. Oh, I didn't realize that. Um, it's Anders Heilsberg, if I remember. Yes, that. exactly. He was the original creator of Tuvo Pascal, as I recall. Yeah, I've, I've uh, talked to Anders. We interviewed him for JavaScript Jabber a number of years ago at Microsoft Build. And yeah, it was really interesting yeah, to hear him talking about what went into it. Yeah, he's definitely my, one of my heroes in this field. I, uh, I guess I owe him quite a bit. Um, and so I kind of played around with computers all through high school. Uh, back then you couldn't actually study computers at high school. So, um, I was just, you know, learning stuff on my own, getting magazines, reading books. Back then you would still actually subscribe to magazines that would literally arrive at your house. Um, and uh, then, um, you know, as an Israeli, most Israelis, when they're 18, we actually join the army. Um, but I actually took this sort of uh, an op, you could call it an opposite route to what most kids do. You actually have this option of going to the university ahead of your military service. 
military service in, in Israel, as I said, is mandatory. Uh, men serve for three years. Um, so you have this option of going to the university before the army, and then you're, you kind of receive this sort of a promise that in, when you finish your studies, you would actually, when you serve in the army, you will actually uh, do what you studied. So if you uh, studied computers, you'll be uh, working on computers in the army, you know, in some sort of a, a department or whatever that does a software development or whatever, or something along these lines. So I actually went to the Hebrew University and studied computer software, you know, bachelor's degree in computer software for three years. Um, nice. Yeah which, yeah, which I enjoyed a lot. Um, and after, after that, I actually indeed went into the army um, where I ended up serving for quite a long time, relatively speaking. I actually served for some like five and a half years. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So I was uh, an officer in the Israeli Air Force. Um, most of my military career, you could say, was uh, in the uh, Air Force test range, uh, where I was uh, busy in missile experiments, you know, lobbing things into the air. <laughs> um, yeah, most of what I did there, by the way, had to do with... Um, I don't exactly know what the term for that would be. Uh, it was basically in experiment safety uh, to ensure that whatever it is that we were launching doesn't fall on anybody's head. Right. Um, uh, Israel is a fairly small country, and um, as as opposed to um, let's say uh, the U.S., where you have your uh, test ranges placed right. at a reasonable far distance from uh, from major population centers, you know, yep. places like uh, White Sands or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, in Israel, it's all kind of packed together. So uh, the, the test range was actually alarming, alarmingly close to some of uh, the major cities here in Israel. So we actually had a bit of a challenge making sure that if anything goes awry, the missile doesn't actually head over and then hit somebody's house or something. Right. Um, yeah. So what I did mostly in that role was do all sorts of um, missile trajectory simulation. So I would actually write co uh, programs that based on parameters that we got would try to simulate worst case scenarios of what might happen with the missile's flight. And, and based on that, figure out, whether or not we could actually safely do that experiment and under what, what parameters and restrictions and whatnot. So it wasn't like, you know, building um, a, a large scale app, let's say that you might do in a team. It was more of like doing a lot of hat, ad hoc projects of, of doing these kinds of simulations. It was really interesting. Um, and it was, uh, I guess, kind of very different than uh, what I would later do in most of my software career. Um, that, that's really interesting. And it's interesting too, because uh, you know, th that kind of technology has come a long way. I mean, uh, people talk about even, you know, especially with Israel, you have the Iron Dome and just, you know, all of the, you know, now it's not just, you know, is it going to go to the right place or is it going to hit the right stationary target? It's, it can inter intercept another missile in the air. Yeah, so I was actually involved in these types of experiments. So, so it was really interesting, like launching two missiles into the air and, and seeing if one could actually hit the other. Yeah, um, yeah it was a uh, very interesting and enjoyable time for me in that regard. That's amazing. That, that's totally yeah. amazing to me. Um, so, um, like I said, I served uh, as an officer in the Israeli Air Force uh -huh. uh, for five and a half years. Um, I actually also started, they actually gave me an option in the army to actually study, uh, start studying for a master's degree in computer science. So I did that as well. Um, and uh, after five and a half years, uh, I finished my military service and uh, I joined the industry right ahead of the dot-com uh, bubble, which was also a very interesting period. Yeah, but. Now, that, that was also around the period where, you know, we were starting to see, you know, JavaScript being used more mainly because it was the only way you could, 
do scripting, I guess, other than Java applets. Yeah. So browser. Yeah. So actually, I didn't get to the browser immediately because, okay. uh, uh, like, I think JavaScript came around '95, and I, I wasn't quite aware of that part yet. Uh, my actually, the first company I went to was a company that uh, was working on uh, multi-user games. Oh, okay. um, so, so up until that point, you know, gaming was already fairly big, but uh, people didn't really have connectivity at home at that time or until mm -hmm. that time. So most people would either just play solo or if you played with your friends, it meant that, you know, you would invite your friends over and you would connect several controllers mm -hmm. to the same console. Um, and I joined this company was trying to introduce the concept of, of multi-user games uh, or, or, you know, all over the network between different people in their own homes so that you could kind of go on this kind of, uh, uh, I would say, forum, pick an mm -hmm. opponent, and then, and then play games with them. And uh, my job was to actually create some of the first games for, for that uh, system. Uh, somewhere between a proof of concept and actually getting some of the initial subscribers so that we could uh, convince some of the, of the larger uh, game makers to actually join in. So it was actually a lot of fun to to build these kind of games. Like uh, one game that I built was um, uh, sort of like uh, uh, you flew a helicopter and you would actually fight again, you know, in sort of a, 3D environment with with other with other people who are also flying around and trying to shoot each each other down, uh, and there was also the uh, uh, you know uh, prereq the, the the 3D shooter game when you ran around a maze and and also yep. fired at others. So you know all everything that you might expect uh, from this type of an environment. Uh, it was fun. But uh, it didn't actually seem to me that, that this was going somewhere. And then, the, um, then around uh, 96, you know, the, 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 uh, every, the whole industry was getting into a frenzy. Uh, and then I moved to a company who was actually more into actual, I wouldn't say web development at the beginning. It was more of, of an internet company. Mm -hmm. um, I, um, it, it, it was a company, well, that, that's another interesting story. Um, so I joined this company as employee number eight or nine, something like that. Uh, I stayed there for something like four, four and a half years. By the time I left, the company was worth something like $2 billion. So, you know, uh, it, it was a pretty wild ride. Um, so that company actually developed a technology um, that would um, be able to download large media, let's say, resources down to people's home over the really limited connections that uh, people used to have back then. So, you know, now we take things like, uh, well, what we're doing right now, uh, mm -hmm. a video conversation, or maybe, you know, streaming in 4K, from home for, for granted, but back then that would have seemed uh, incredible. Uh, and you literally couldn't even download music in real time because very often the connections were so limited. Right. So, so the, that company that I joined was actually called BackWeb, um, uh, developed this technology that would uh, be able to notice when your connection was unused. So let's say you were surfing the web you go, you go to some website and then you start reading the web page that you're visiting Well, you're still connected, but your uh, wire is kind of free right now. So it would actually identify that and then start downloading uh, content in the background while you were doing that. So we would kind of download content that you would subscribe to, store it on your computer, and then you would have it be able to access it as local resources. So, you know, a music file, a video file, images, whatever. Uh, and it was there that I finally got into web development and JavaScript. Um, and that's also an interesting story. Um, so around 98, I think it was, uh, we were kind of looking, 
you know, for what to do with this technology. We were bouncing around between various ideas, consumer tech, tech uh, products for the enterprise. And we created this thing where it was like a tool for salespeople that they could uh, access uh, marketing material online. So, you know, you'd like go to a website, you'd have uh, uh, various, uh, let's say, brochures, marketing material. And because it was targeted at that, I would say like traveling salesmen or salespersons, um, they, back then, they would definitely be offline a lot, a lot of the time. So the idea was that they should be able to say, well, you know, these products are the ones that are especially interesting for us and have the relevant material download and be available offline for them so that they could use it with prospective customers even if they don't have any connectivity. And I got, so the online part was built as a straight on website, you know, that you would go mm -hmm. in and, and see the various products. And I got this crazy idea that maybe the offline part could be done as some, uh, using the same web-based user interface. So that instead of having, you know, a web-based interface to get at the, at the uh, online stuff and some native application to access the offline stuff, you would do everything from within the browser. And everybody thought that it, would, it was nuts. But just around that time, uh, IE4, Internet Explorer 4 came out. And uh, I don't know if you remember that, but that kind of like changed everything with what you could do with, with web technology. Because it was the, the first browser that actually had uh, a DOM, you might say, mm -hmm. that you could actually program and modify. Um, the, there was even the concept then of, of dynamic HTML as, as yeah. opposed to regular HTML, which was like totally static HTML. Um, so I got this crazy idea that maybe with using this dynamic HTML and this weird language in the browser that's called JavaScript, I could maybe somehow get this local information into the browser and effectively create this rich web application that could even work offline. And I'm, and I'm saying again, it's 1998. So I'm thinking about creating a rich, capable, offline capable web application in 1998. You uh, invented and, Electron a lot of years early. <laughs> yeah, either that or progressive web apps. There you go. Uh, yeah. So the initial idea was to try to create a locally running web server, but it turns out that you can't really do something like that on Windows 98. Um, <laughs> and yeah, uh, basically it got zero CPU, so you would try to open the web page and nothing would happen. So we, right. we gave up on that. Uh, and instead, uh, you know, Microsoft had this uh, crazy technology back then called ActiveX. Uh, mm -hmm. which was like their answer to Netscape uh, plugins. Wow, I'm showing my age. Uh, and, um, and the great thing about ActiveX, so it, it, you, could, you could embed these, these components inside the browser window, and they would uh, take over a certain part of the, of the browser window. So it was like, you know, Flash Player or whatever that uh, I guess people are kind of more familiar with. But there was another interesting option there, and that was that the ActiveX could actually talk to the JavaScript that was in the page. Mm -hmm. So I thought, hey, instead of building a display using the ActiveX, I'll make the ActiveX itself zero size and instead push all the data that I want into the JavaScript and have the JavaScript update the DOM and display all the documents and links and whatnot directly in the DOM. Right. So I was using the ActiveX only as a data source and actually building the user interface with JavaScript. Uh, and, and it worked, which was pretty insane. Um, <laughs> I have that feeling about stuff I build sometimes. That yeah. worked? That's nuts. Yeah, it was pretty nuts. And, and you know, we would occasionally crash the browser because uh, IE4 and all sorts right. of memory leaks. 
and, and whatnot. Um, and it wasn't really, really built to be an application platform. Mm-hmm. I mean, you could tell that it was already back then. You could tell that it was heading that way, but, but, um, but it wasn't there yet. By the way, at that time, you didn't even have Ajax. Um, Ajax only came around in IE 5.5 a couple of years later, um, in 2000, I think. So I'm talking <laughs> something like uh, a year and a half before Ajax even came around. Wow. Um, yeah. And, uh, and it worked and it, it was actually sold to some customers. So I had actually, you know, people using that solution, which I, I found to be incredibly awesome. Um, and we did an, a few more uh, web-related stuff uh, there. Um, and uh, and uh, then by the beginning of the 2000s, the bubble burst. And, yep. um, and a lot of companies started downward spiral, including that one. Uh, and so I left. And I actually went to a company that did, uh, that does, uh, enterprise software development and back there not on the web at all so I kind of uh, left uh, the web uh, for a while um, and and really got back into writing code with uh, C++ and uh, Java and afterwards uh, C Sharp but mostly as uh, native Windows applications or applications running on on the Linux platform but hardly anything in the web as as part of my my day job you would say huh. um but interestingly i i i had such fond memories and you know experiences with with the web that i kept on you know working with javascript as a hobby uh which actually led to to another interesting occurrence so i'm checking the date when this happened um, so, um, some when or something around 2002 or something like that, I'm, I'm, you know, browsing the, the web because we did have the web already. And I, I find this article, uh, by a guy, by a guy from the Netherlands, uh, called, uh, uh Vischer, who basically shows how to use closures. Uh, because that's more or less when uh, JavaScript got uh, closures. Because oh, up wow. to that point, you know, it, it's you know people take things like you know we we have JavaScript these days with E6 and all these crazy capabilities yeah. and and arrow functions and classes and destructuring and whatnot. I remember JavaScript from when it didn't even have try catch. Uh, that, uh, the, I know you you're know, talking about, that's when I got closures and I'm like, I don't remember JavaScript without closures or a DOM or, you know, a lot of these things that you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So by the way, going back to my first uh, story for just one second, uh, when we started writing that, uh, web interface, we actually, uh, IE4 actually supported both JavaScript and VB script, yeah. uh, which was a vi- variation of, of VB as scripting languages within the browsers. And we were kind of debating whether or not to use uh, JavaScript or VBScript. And uh, some of the people were actually pushing to use uh, VBScript because uh, you were, we were using VBScript for the backend in, in ASP. Uh, mm-hmm. you, you used to use VBScript. So they were saying like, you know, kind of like the uh, isomorphic JavaScript that we have these days, they were just like saying, you know, we could, do VBScript on both the client and the server, so why not use VBScript? And VBScript actually had one benefit over JavaScript that it could actually handle errors. Well, JavaScript did not yet have try-catch right. at, at that time. So basically, we handled errors with Windows on error if we, if we actually wanted to intercept the error. Um, and uh, I kind of went with, with JavaScript because based on my experiences with languages like... Uh, C++ and Java on the one hand and VB on the other hand, I greatly preferred the, the JavaScript syntax over, right. over the VB syntax. And uh, ultimately, you know, we all know where the world went. But anyway, so, so uh, Zord wrote this interesting piece about, about closures and, and showed some of the ways in which they could be used. 
And it really resonated with me because back when I had written that uh, program, one of the big challenges that we faced was that I was trying to do it object-oriented and, and encapsulate all my functionality in classes. But whenever I hooked up a method to an event handler on a DOM object, the, this value would be the, the DOM object rather mm -hmm. than my object instance. And, uh, it, you know, we created kind of crazy solutions like a, a big uh, global map that actually mapped uh, IDs to JavaScript object references and would leak memory like a sieve. Uh, and just to get around this whole thing of, of reconciling the value of this. So all of a sudden you've got, you know, you've got closures, problem solved. You know, you could associate uh, the event handler with a function within a closure and, and, you know, you've got the access to, to the object that you want to, to update and modify. Um, and so I wrote back to him and he wrote to me and we actually ended up using this functionality to create um, um, a software library together, which was, I guess, my only really significant foray into open source. Uh, although I'm a huge fan of open source and I greatly mm -hmm. appreciate all the people who are working on it, I've, I, I personally cannot say that I've been a big contributor, unfortunately. Uh, it seems that somewhere between my day job and the work-life balance, I can never find enough time to put into, into open source projects, certainly as much as I would like to. But anyway, that time I, I did, maybe because I had a bit more time, maybe because I was missing JavaScript while I was you know, at work coding on C++. So we created this library called BeyondJS. I, I probably put a link in the, in the show notes or whatever, uh, because I just, before this show, I actually searched for it and found that it's actually still online. And it's pretty nuts because we basically created this uh, functional library, kind of like functional um, Lodash or maybe a Ramda style library. Mm -hmm. um, but back in 2002. And uh, I remember putting this on all sorts of uh, forums and trying to get people to look at this. And people were basically just saying, you know, responding, well, I don't understand. This doesn't even look like JavaScript. You guys are nuts. What is this stuff good for? And it basically had, you know, the things that you would now expect, like map and, mm -hmm. uh, and reduce and all this stuff. But nobody was doing that sort of thing back then. So it was kind of insane. You know, JavaScript didn't, not only, it didn't actually even have bind. So we had to implement our own bind. Uh, oh, it didn't have a, apply. So we had to implement our own apply to get that to work. All sorts of weird stuff. And we added lazy valuation, all sorts of crazy stuff into that. Um, um, but like I said, it was a hobby. And when people didn't uh, get it, we kind of let it drop. But if anybody feels like uh, taking up this really old, weird functional library, uh, I'd be <laughs> happy to see that happen. You know, it's, uh, I, I, so the demos actually still work, which is a great testament to the backward capability, uh, compatibility of, of browsers and the web in general. I think yeah. that's pretty awesome. Um, so anyway, um, I was, uh, I was uh, playing with JavaScript, but uh, mainly working in C++, Java, and C Sharp. And uh, happily for me, around 2010, 2011, I finally got a chance to go back uh, to web development. Um, and uh, the, company that, the company that I, working, that I was working for at the time uh, was uh, doing uh, remote access solutions. So essentially what this means is that, uh, you know, you might connect to a remote computer from your, uh, your uh, computer or terminal, whatever, uh, stuff, uh, you know, like uh, going from VNC to RDP to anybody mm -hmm. who's familiar with a Citrix type solution or anything like that, I don't know. How many of the people listening to the show are, are familiar with these types of technologies? Uh, but they're actually 
fairly commonly used in, in enterprise uh, environments. So we had uh, a native client for a remote access solution. And then back in 2010, I got this crazy idea that the web had progressed enough, the browsers were powerful enough that uh, maybe you could actually do something like that in the browser. So I actually tried to convince management to let me build a remote access solution with a browser-based client. Um, there, there were actually a few uh, third-party, uh, like open source projects out there, mostly around the VNC protocol that did stuff like that, but they were really, really clunky, at least back then. And I thought that this was an interesting opportunity. And I got shut down because uh, I couldn't explain to management why doing something totally within the browser is actually beneficial. <laughs> um, so that's true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, actually, now half the time, I, I swear I'm trying to talk people out of doing everything in the browser. It's like, yeah. no, you don't need to do that in the browser. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's funny. You know, people now actually run Windows in the browser. Um, I, I oh, recently yeah. opened the Windows in the browser just so that I could play uh, mine, Minefield or whatever it's called. Minesweeper, sorry. Minesweeper, that's uh, it. I almost said Minecraft and I knew that wasn't right either. Yeah. So anyway, but it was probably a good idea that they told me no when I initially proposed it, when I think it was either 2009 or 2010, because really the browsers weren't... Browsers weren't really ready yet for something like that. It would have come out uh, too clunky. But then around 2010, 2011, things really started to pick up uh, speed. Uh, I don't remember exactly when Chrome came out, but we got uh, WebSockets and we got uh, Canvas and uh, we got uh, HTML5. Uh, was starting to become a thing and all of a sudden browsers were really moving forward quickly and you could actually do something like that in a way that actually made sense. So instead of doing something like long polling on HTTP, you could actually use WebSockets and instead of creating a trillion DOM elements, you could actually draw a remote screen uh, using Canvas. Um, so all of a sudden it did make sense and I was actually able to pitch this to management again and this time uh, and do a, a simple demo that actually showed that this had merit and actually got the green light to go ahead with it and, um, and I built this product which was um, a remote access solution around the RDP protocol which is a remoting protocol in, uh, that Windows has uh, for remote access. And, and the crazy thing was that initially, we were all sure that uh, even with all these advancements, uh, it's probably going to be much slower in the browser than as a native application. Mm -hmm. And it turned out that after we did a whole bunch of optimizations, the browser as, a, as, a, as, a, as the endpoint actually was faster than our native client. Oh, wow. Uh, because browsers have all these, even then, certainly now, have all these uh, uh, integrations with the GPU. Um, and so when you, when you leverage the, the browser's capabilities to you know, network and, and then render, the browsers are really, really good at that. Um, so, so once we found the best ways to kind of get out of the browser way as much as we, as much as we could, we actually got awesome performance so that you might, for example, be able to connect to some remote computer and actually play a video on that comp remote computer and get it reflected into the browser with audio and I won't say 60 frames per second, but let's say 20 frames per second, which is right. really not bad. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that was back in 2012. So... So yeah, that, that, was, uh, that was pretty awesome. And it turned out to be a very successful product for the company as well. Uh, we were like uh, the first one that really had an enterprise class product. Right now, there are quite a number of such solutions out there, but back then we were like the first and it was uh, really awesome. Um, 
And then I left that company <laughs> uh, and uh, finally arrived at Wix. Um, nice. So uh, around 2014, I was looking for my next challenge. Uh, and I came to Wix for an interview. And uh, I had, I gained, uh, working on that remote access solution, I gained a lot of expertise around performance because like I said, you know, being able to hit something like 20 frames per second really required us to, to have uh, highly efficient JavaScript, for example, and whatnot. So that, and, and Wix was looking for somebody to kind of be uh, a leader for, uh, for performance at Wix mm-hmm. or a champion for performance at Wix. Um, and that was kind of like it worked, I hope, worked well for both sides because, well, they seem to be pleased with me because uh, <laughs> I'm still there. So, um, and, and it, the company, the company is doing well. So I, I would like to take a little bit of credit for that as well. Um, I, I joined Wix in 2014. We were around 400, 500 people back then. And now we are 2,600. So we've grown, uh, by what is it? By more than fivefold within less than wow. five years. Yeah, and it's funny because my my mom's a teacher, and I think she runs her classroom website on Wix. So yeah, she and another 140 million people all over yep. the world. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Very cool. So yeah, so uh, now my current position at Wix is uh, the the official. T- Wix is not really so much into titles, but I guess my title is performance tech lead. Uh, which means I have kind of a cross-company role in helping the various teams and groups and companies within Wix uh, to get the best performance that they can. Right. Um, and, uh, and since we have something like, what is it, 600, 700 front-end engineers at, at Wix, I certainly have my hands full uh, in that regard. Um, and, and yeah, so that's more or less where I am now. Very cool. And we talked a bit about that work in the podcast episode on JavaScript Jabber. So I'm going to refer people to that, um, mostly in the, the interest of time because we're basically at the end of our scheduled time. Um, I am curious, though, um, are, are there any things in particular you're looking at learning or working on these days that you're really excited about? Um, yeah, so, um, uh, you know, the, uh, one of the, there, there's so much happening in the browsers in terms of, of both of technologies that are specific to performance that are related to performance mm-hmm. or that have performance implications. Um, I, I'm really happy about the fact that uh, web performance has kind of be, uh, become front and center uh, for, for web development in general, that there's currently an understanding that uh, if you want to be successful, then you have to be performant. Um, uh, at Wix, for example, uh, something like uh, a year ago, uh, the CEO in front of the entire company set uh, three main strategic goals for the company as a whole. And I'm glad to say that one of them is actually performance. Um, so that uh, um, uh, it's, it's not just me working on performance at Wix. It's literally all of R&D working on performance at Wix. And, um, and I don't have to like, you know, uh, prod people into doing things that are related to performance. They, they are really, happy and, and, you know, engage with it. And I'm happy to say that there are a lot of technologies related to it um, that, that you, could, you can leverage these days to, to get the most. So anything starting from the developer tools that we have, you know, uh, I, I don't think that people give uh, the developer tools that are built into the browsers enough credit for the success that the web has experienced. Uh, I think that, you know, starting with uh, Firebug and Firefox way back Mm -hmm. and now in the Chrome developer tools, you know, without the Chrome developer tools, I don't think we would have the the, the modern web. 
right. and uh, it certainly has uh, some amazing uh, performance tools and capabilities built into that. So anything from the audit tab to the network tab to the performance tab. And it's such a moving target because they keep on adding new features and capabilities to that. And, and I think that that is awesome. Um, there's the uh, web performance API, which get, keeps getting bigger and better that we talked about um, in my JavaScript Jabber, um, uh, the one that I participated in. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you're looking at the various frameworks, you know, be it Angular or React or Vue, and you see all the emphasis that they are uh, uh, currently putting on, on making these uh, frameworks uh, as, uh, again, enable the applications to be as, as fast and, has, and have good performance. Uh, it's, it's really a top priority across the board. Uh, I think we kind of uh, mentioned Svelte before the show began when we were kind of chatting away. And it actually, and I saw an amazing demo of the performance that Svelte had. Oh, so yeah, I definitely it's got think, awesome performance. Yeah, so I definitely think that there are a lot of interesting uh, possibilities and definitely a lot of stuff to learn around uh, uh, performance these days. And, and, uh, and there's so much supporting technology that you need to understand when you are talking about performance, like understanding the difference, let's say, between HTTP 1.1 and HTTP 2 and resources and uh, progressive web apps and, and caching. Um, and, and you keep on learning new stuff. Like uh, just a few uh, weeks ago, I learned that browser caching now works a lot differently than I used than it used to, and then what I thought that you know the way that I thought that it did. Um, uh, for example, here's a tip for our listeners: um, if you were, uh, let's say, in site, uh, let's say a.com, and download a certain resource from a URL, and then go to a different site that let's say b.com and download the same resource from the same URL you would expect uh, that second download to come from a cache. Well, it used to, but it turns out that that's probably not necessarily no, uh, the case anymore. If you're using Safari, Safari apparently uses something like a double index cache or double keyed cache, where the key is not just the URL of the resource, it's also the domain, the current domain. So mm -hmm. uh, even though they're both downloading the same file, it will actually not be shared across the cache because otherwise that could uh, lead to fingerprinting and potentially an invasion of your privacy. And uh, so, yeah, so turns out that cache works a lot. That something as basic as cache uh, is, is changing and, and is working in a way that's different from what most of us might think that that's the way that it works. Yep. Very cool. Well, I'm going to push this over to Pix. Are there some things that you want to shout about, shout out about on the show? Yeah. So, uh, like I said, I will definitely put uh, the link to that uh, library I mentioned, and and uh, an article that provides like a brief explanation of it. And like I said, if anybody wants uh, to play with aging functional technology, I'd be really pleased with that. Uh, there's also another uh, blog post that I wrote about, uh, you know, that uh, first uh, rich web application that I created with a bit more technical detail. I'll, I'll provide the link to that as well. Um, and uh, other than that, um, I, like I said, I participated recently in, in, uh, in a web conference here in Israel. Uh, you got a love front-end or YGLF conference. Uh, hopefully by the time uh, this, uh, pod, this uh, podcast comes out, um, the videos for that will be up and there were some great sessions there. So I highly recommend checking that out and we can probably put a link to that as well. And uh, that more or less covers it for me. Cool. Um, I'm going to throw in a couple of picks. So uh, today I went for a run and, uh, you know, I just went over to the gym. Wow. You're uh, a runner. Yeah, I've been training for a marathon. 
So wow, um, I, I just I love it. I I love I love the running. I love the training. Um, I hired a coach um, back in December to help me prep for the marathon, and she put in my exercises in in this app that we use. It's called V dot O two. So if you want to track workouts, or um, you know, you can actually invite a coach to join you, um, so that they can. So see who's so who's more fit, you or Amy Knight? Amy, <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> Amy is more fit than I am. That that woman's a machine. Let me tell you. Yeah, um, she's amazing. She's awesome. Yep. But uh, I'm really digging it, and um, I I started posting uh, some of my workouts to Instagram, and I've really been enjoying that too. So I'm going to pick Instagram. Um, I get to, I don't actually run. I'm not such a big fan of running, but I do go to the gym, you know, and you uh -huh. do need to keep yourself fit. And I got another great thing, which is that I can ride my bike to work. So I actually ride my bike to the park, to my office uh, every day. So it's like a half hour each way through the park. Nice. This is really awesome. Yeah, I, I work from home, so... Yeah, my my commute. I guess I could ride my bike around the block or something. But yeah, very nice. <laughs> well, if people want to find you online, where do they go? Well, I'm I'm fairly active on Twitter. Uh, I'm really close to the uh, two thousand followers mark. So maybe your listeners, if I haven't passed it by the time this podcast comes out, maybe some a few of your listeners can help me achieve uh, this goal. I don't, I, I probably, you know, you don't really get anything in return, but it'll still be nice. Um, amazing tweets, folks. <laughs> Thank you. Thank All you. That All that wisdom. I do like to do some uh, JavaScript riddles every once in a while. So if anybody, oh, that might be another interesting link. I put a link to uh, both a, um, a, a conference talk that I once gave with a list of JavaScript riddles. And also a link to Twitter where you like, you know, based on, on, a, on a hashtag that you can find all my JavaScript riddles. So that could be, provide hours of fun to your listeners. Um, so that might be a cool link as well to put there. Uh, and I've also started like posting stuff on Quora. And I've oh, got nice. a surprising number of, of, of readers there. I like Quora. Uh, you do? Yeah, I like reading stuff there. A lot of interesting anecdotal stuff. Yep. Um, and and uh, there's also the Wix engineering blog where I post every once in a blue moon. Very cool. All right. Well, thank you for coming, Dan. Um, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up because I've got to jump on another call, but thanks for coming. And we will catch I enjoyed you it very much. I greatly appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, thanks again. Thank you. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.